Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Each year, the Supreme Court gets somewhere between 7,000 and 8,000 requests to weigh in on the merits of a case. It grants only about 80 of those requests, which normally come in the form of something called petitions for certiorari. Few people track petitions as carefully as John Elwood, an attorney at Vincent and Elkins, and our guest today. John has argued nine cases at the Supreme Court, and he is the author of one of the blog's most popular features, the always entertaining Readlist Watch. First, though, let's start with a quick recap of recent news at the Supreme Court. Last week, Republican legislators from Ohio and Michigan asked the justices to put lower court rulings that found partisan gerrymandering in those states on hold while they appeal. In March, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two cases alleging partisan gerrymandering in North Carolina and Maryland. A key question in both oral arguments was whether partisan gerrymandering claims belong in court at all. Ohio and Michigan legislators argued that they should not have to draw new maps, at least until the Supreme Court decides the North Carolina and Maryland cases. And if the justices rule that courts have no role in dealing with partisan gerrymandering claims, the legislators contend, then Ohio and Michigan might not have to come up with new maps at all. This morning, the justices ruled in favor of iPhone users in their antitrust lawsuit against Apple. The iPhone users allege that Apple is violating federal laws by requiring them to buy apps exclusively from Apple's app store at inflated prices. The question before the justices was whether that lawsuit could go forward at all, and a divided court ruled that it could. Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote the decision for the majority in an opinion joined by the court's four more liberal justices. The justices also issued a decision in a somewhat arcane constitutional dispute over whether one state can be sued by a private party in another state without its consent. The court divided five to four on ideological lines in holding that it cannot. Perhaps the most interesting part of the ruling was that the decision overruled a 40-year-old case. That prompted Justice Stephen Breyer to write in his dissent that the ruling can only cause one to wonder which cases the court will overrule next, which many court watchers interpreted as a not-too-subtle hint that, from Breyer's perspective, Roe versus Wade could be in jeopardy. The justices once again did not act on it. Petitions for review asking them to weigh in on Indiana's abortion laws or the case of an Oregon couple who declined to make a custom wedding cake for a same-sex couple. They did, however, continue to spar over issues relating to the death penalty, including in cases in which the court had acted on requests to intervene in executions weeks ago. The justices will hold another conference on Thursday, May 16th, and we would expect orders from that conference next Monday morning. The Indiana abortion and wedding cake cases have already been relisted for the May 16th conference, which is a perfect segue to our conversation with John Elwood, creator and author of Relist Watch. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me. So let's let's start at the very beginning. This is the Supreme Court version of, of how a bill becomes a law. What is a petition for certiorari? A uh, petition for certiorari is the courts, as a formal matter, it's the court requesting to be informed. And that's what certiorari means. It's Latin via Middle English. And it basically calls up the case from the lower court for, so that the Supreme Court can review it. But as a practical matter, it means that uh, it's just a discretionary, it's a petition for discretionary review. You're asking the court to exercise its uh, discretionary jurisdiction over the case. And there are some appeals that come to the Supreme Court that are not discretionary review. There's there's a thing called a jurisdictional statement. That's correct. There are, It only happens, the, the Supreme Court has overwhelmingly discretionary jurisdiction since 
sometime in the 1920s, thanks to Chief Justice Taft, who got that through Congress. There are very few appeals left. The Supreme Court only has a couple every year, few enough that even a lot of Supreme Court experts are very rusty on it. But it starts with a jurisdictional statement. That's correct, instead of a petition for certiorari. And then walk us through the process a little bit, please. Once the petition is filed, then what happens? Sure. The petition, uh, you have uh, 90 days to file your petition after the lower court ruling, which can be extended up to 60 days, but it's hard getting more than 30. After that, the you have the response of pleading, which is usually a brief in opposition, although sometimes people acquiesce, saying that they are fine if the court takes it. And that the default is 30 days, although it can be extended and the Supreme Court gives extensions away like candy. There's also the possibility of amicus briefs overwhelmingly only on the top side supporting the petitioner. Those have to be filed within 30 days. It's not extendable. And usually, but not always, the respondent asks for an extension so they can see those amicus briefs because otherwise the deadline would be on the same day. And then the petitioner, the, the person who's person or entity, corporation, who's asking the Supreme Court to weigh in gets to file a reply. That's correct. There's no deadline on it, but if you don't act within 14 days, there's a chance that they will read the brief in opposition without having your response to it handy. One thing that I want to emphasize, though, is the thing that drives the train is the brief in opposition or the waiver, the the paper saying we waive our right to file a response. That is what determines when things get distributed. Nobody sees anything until the brief in opposition or the waiver is filed. Yeah, so that's something that I always find sort of fascinating. They all sort of sit downstairs, literally, in the Supreme Court, in the, the clerk's office. And then at a certain point after the brief, brief in opposition is filed, then they go to the go to the justices' chambers? That's correct. And that's called distributed. Right. That's the distribution. And it happens... It happens 14, it's like the first Wednesday that's at least 14 days after the filing of the brief in opposition. And they're literally brought around on a big cart and they they drop them off in every chambers. And each case, once it's filed, actually gets a, a entry, a docket number, and then an entry on the court's electronic docket so that you can track it. And so when the case gets distributed to the justices, you get a little entry on the electronic electronic docket that says distributed for conference of such and such a date. And then sort of what happens once they're distributed to the justices? What's going on in the justices' chambers? Well, uh, the the law clerks are reviewing the the papers. Now, seven of the justices, all but Alito and Gorsuch, participate in something called the cert pool, which is basically one clerk among all of the chambers that participates actually reads all the papers and writes up a, a memorandum that is between typically between, you know, like four and, in a, in say, four and ten pages, uh, typically, although some are as short as one page and some are as long as 20 or 25, that first summarizes the contentions of the parties and then recommends a proposed resolution. And those memos then go to the justice, the individual justice, from, and then to all of the other justices in the cert pool? That's correct. They're then distributed, the cert pool uh, memos are distributed to all of the other participating chambers. They're typically annotated by a law clerk in every justice's chambers and then given to the justice who then decides you know, how they're going to cast the vote. From that, the chief justice compiles what is known as, a discuss, as the discuss list. I, I understand that until the 1930s, the Supreme Court discussed literally every petition that was filed uh, in conference, however briefly. 
Charles Evan Hughes, who was a stickler for efficiency, came up with the discuss list and put on it the cases that they would actually discuss at conference, and that has carried forward to the present day. The Chief Justice tries to anticipate, you know, what cases people want to discuss, but any justice can add a case to the discuss list. The rest of the cases are put on what is called the, the dead list. Uh, so evocative. And it, it's very evocative, <laughs> but it's been called the dead list. It seems like a, a kind of something that would only come up in kind of current day, but it's been called dead listed since the 1930s, I understand. Do but it is a, very evocative, yeah. Do you have a sense, like in a, in a particular week, if, you know, say they've just had a conference last week and then they have another conference again this week, how many cases might be on the discuss list for a particular conference? There was an article written in 1990 called The Discuss List, which estimated, or I think they actually looked through old papers and came up with a figure of 20 to 30 percent of cases get on the discuss list. But we've had what I think is a glimpse of this recently when Justice Gorsuch joined the court. The order list of April 24, 2017, had 15 cases on it that said Justice Gorsuch did not participate in these cases. And I think that, that what we're seeing there is the discuss list. And if you combine those 15 cases with the 17, those were the cases that were resolved that week. But presumably all the other cases that were relisted, which we haven't discussed yet, were also on the discuss list. And that was another 17. And this is the reason why I was late coming up to the conference room here is that uh, if you add those cases together, that's 32, and there were 210 cases on for that conference, which is uh, 15%. I always find it kind of sad, actually, for the people who, whose cases are on the dead list. That I, I know that the Supreme Court doesn't have time right. to talk about them all, but right. you know, they're, they're, your case is denied without the justices actually ever even talking about them. Back when I was a trial lawyer, and I did a lot of defense-side work, and I thought if you could get acquitted on some counts, that was your little victory. And I think at least if they make the discuss list, that is something. So the, the conferences usually happen on Thursday or Friday, depending on the time of year. And then at some point after that, and again, it's dependent on the time of year, and we won't get into the, the weeds on this one, we get what's called an order list from the Supreme Court. The overwhelming majority of the cases are denied, but sometimes it can take much longer. Sometimes a case is what's called rescheduled. What does that mean in this context? Sure. A case is rescheduled when a case is scheduled for one conference, say, you know, April 21st, and there will be an annotation before they discuss it at that conference. Someone will ask that it be moved to another conference. Sometimes they just ask it for it to be rescheduled without even giving an end date. But in any event, uh, rescheduling is when the case is moved from one conference to a later conference without it being discussed at conference. And this is something that, uh, now I'm dating myself here, it's a relatively new term on the electronic docket. When did they start using it, and, and do you have a sense of why they started using it? It's become a lot more common in recent years. I think that it's actually been done for quite some time. In fact, it was even done when I was clerking. That's how I first heard about it. And I clerked in the 96, 1996 term. But it's become much more frequently used since then. And I think it's used for a number of things, although the court never explains this. So it's just a matter of what we infer over time. I think one of the most traditional ones is, most traditional reasons is when they move a case to, they delay it to, so another case that raises the same issue can catch up. Because the court likes to consider cases that raise the same issue at the same time so they can decide which is the best vehicle and so they can treat them all the same way. More recently, I've seen justices reschedule cases and I infer that they are doing that 
so that they can be basically become very prepared on the case before it's even discussed for the first time. And I also have seen, I infer, justices reschedule cases so they can prepare a, they, they think it's going to be denied, and so they can prepare a dissent from denial so that it can be, you know, basically they can issue it immediately after they discuss the case. I've seen Justice Sotomayor do that, or so I infer. One case that has been rescheduled a lot lately is a case called Doe versus Boyertown, which involves the issue of transgender bathrooms at schools. It's been rescheduled something like nine times? That's correct, nine times. Do you have any sense of what's going on there? I don't know is the short answer. I don't remember if it was uh, it was first started being rescheduled at a time when it might have been granted and argued this term. Because I think one reason why to delay a case is so that it can be done, uh, be argued at the early, uh, in the next term, because the court usually sits from October to June. And, you know, for for difficult cases, I think they prefer to hear early in the term so they have the most time to consider them. But I think perhaps what is happening here is just one or more of the justices is learning the case, uh, learning about the case before they ever discuss it at conference, reading into the case and finding out what it's all about so that, you know, basically that they're, they're spun up on the case uh, when they first discuss it at conference. But it's, it's very hard to say what's going on. So another, another thing that can happen is that a case can be what's called relisted. And this is just, it, the court doesn't grant, it doesn't deny, it just redistributes the case for the next conference. And this is something that the Supreme Court has been doing for a really long time. It's something that has been appearing on the docket for a long time, but it's taken on an added significance in the past few years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. This is something that's interested me since I clerked, because when a justice needs more time to think about a case, they ask for it to be relisted. And that is the the absolute most common or uh, reason why a justice might ask it to be as for a case to appear on consecutive conferences. But you know they discuss it once and they want it to come back. But it is also used for other reasons, like when someone is a, a justice plans to dissent or write a you know a separate opinion about a case that they're not going to take. That is, it's also relisted for that. And I think, uh, I speculate that that's because old Chief Justice Rehnquist wanted to keep tabs on stuff and make sure, you know, keep pressure on people to produce drafts so that it's not, you know, hanging around forever. They also relist cases that are going to be a subject to a summary opinion, like a summary reversal usually or summary vacatur, where a, a lower court got a case so clearly wrong and so clearly inconsistent with existing precedent that they can reverse it or vacate it without argument. But recently, uh, beginning in 2014, I think it is. So, Sounds oh, about right. Yeah. The, the court started routinely relisting cases before granting. And uh, there, was a, there was a series of cases that the court dismissed as improvidently granted. I think there were three of them. After granting, uh, granting review in a case, they wound up dismissing them because it turned out there were vehicle problems, like the case was moot or something. That they, that they, it turns out they weren't able to reach the issue that they granted on. And it was uh, annoying enough to the court that I think that they started routinely relisting cases so that the first week they consider a case, they decide tentatively we're going to grant this case. And they spend the next week with the clerks digging in to make sure that there aren't any vehicle problems. And I think that the last case that was granted before being routinely, the routine relists uh, began was Riley versus California, the cell phone search case, which was granted in January of 2014, I think. 
And not every case has been relisted since then, but that is when the routine relist began. And that's when I think people started actually reading Relist Watch on SCOTUS blog. Everybody but the nerds. There's actually kind of a funny story. Chief Judge Merrick Garland is in my uh, criminal of end of court. And uh, anyway, long before he was a nominee, he came up to me at the end of court and he said, Hey, John, I, I read Relist Watch. And he paused and he said, I decided I didn't care that much about the Supreme Court. <laughs> And uh, anyway, I thought it was a pretty sick burn. I, I thought it was a pretty funny, funny joke. But, uh, you know, that was in the old days. Now I think because it's a preview of grants, often the relists are much more interesting now. They don't relist after their f- very first conference necessarily. That's when they right. They come back from the summer. Mm-hmm. They take a couple of extra days, I assume, and maybe check them for vehicle problems. Yeah, they have enough lead time for the long conference, that, uh, which is usually in September, that there usually aren't relists there. And the other place that I see grants without relists the most is the first one uh, in, in January, something like mm-hmm. that. It's like there's a, there's a long period between conferences, and that's another one where you see a lot of cases granted without relists. Right. Yeah, it's a, the, the first conference after the summer is a real hardship for the reporters, though, because we can't rely on you to do our work for us. (laughs) Uh, So you you mentioned that sometimes the cases are relisted because justices may be writing what's called a dissent from a denial or a statement respecting denial. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between those? And sometimes the justices may be writing those with a little bit of an agenda, perhaps. Exactly. Some of the most persuasive dissents from denial we never read because they shake loose the four votes necessary for a grant. And I think a lot of people, I think that's probably why a lot of uh, dissents from denial are written in the hopes that it will change people's minds. And I think that, you know, that's maybe what happens in some of the most realistic cases that wind up being granted, like Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, you know, the the case of the baker who refused to make a cake for a same-sex couple's wedding was relisted something like 14 times before it was granted. And I assume that what happened there is it ultimately changed somebody, some dissent changed enough minds to get a grant. Comcast versus Behrend, uh, a fairly dull right up there with Masterpiece uh, arbitration <laughs> case. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's arbitration. I don't even know. But it was relisted like eight times. It was the, it was the relist champ for grants for a long time until Masterpiece Cape Shot came along. Came along, And the all-time leader, the all-time winner is... God, what is its name? It's something versus Hurls. Ryan versus Hurls out of yes. Arizona was relisted over 20 times. And then they, I think they denied. But I think there was something that happened in Arizona that changed the facts on the ground. And then sometimes the case will just sort of disappear. They won't relist it. They won't reschedule it. It's called a hold. Oh, right. Yes, yes. When a case just kind of drops off a cliff and, you know, the, it's the last time it was considered at conference was months ago. And typically when they're doing that, they're holding it for another case. They're holding it for a case that they've actually granted review on. And the court holds pretty, if it could possibly change uh, the outcome in a case, or or I'm sorry, if one of the cases they're considering now could possibly change the outcome in another case, they will hold that other case just, you know, and then they typically send it back to the Court of Appeals to consider in the first instance. But there is actually uh, some cases that just sort of drop off a cliff. And uh, there's, a, there's a series now of, uh, I don't know, maybe like eight cases, I'll have to go back and look at them, where the last entry on the docket is rescheduled. And they just haven't rescheduled it yet. And some of those cases go for months. 
and it's just amazing to me. And I, I don't know what's happening with those cases. I just I scratch my head. But there's a there's a list of them. Periodically, I post them on Twitter if anybody's interested. Every once in a while, I'll get an email you know, from the lawyers in some of yeah. these cases who will say, "Do you have any idea what's going on?" And my response is, well, "If I don't, if you don't know, how am I supposed yeah, to know?" I just don't know. No, they're just head scratchers. And unfortunately, uh, we may never know because the, the justices typically put such strong limitations on, you know, release of their papers that I'm not sure that any of the current justices' papers will be released during my lifetime. Right. We talked about this in the last podcast with the grants in the LGBT employment cases Mm -hmm. and what on earth was going on with all of those. And the conclusion was we'll probably never know. Yes. I hope that my children will hold a seance and tell me. (laughs) Exactly. Andrew may know someday, but, but we probably will not. Last pressing question for you, the links for Realist Watch. If you click on a lot of the links in Realist Watch, they're often highly entertaining. Where do you get those? Um, I have a, I have weird <laughs> ideas, and uh, sometimes I will Google just a very, you know, some phrase that appears in the petition or something that the petition reminds me of, and I'll just see what comes up. And it's uh, those things, as much as they amuse other people, they amuse me even more. So... But it's, uh, it's my weird mind combined with the weirdness of Google. Bacon-flavored toothpaste for humans. I knew <laughs> they have it for dogs. I didn't know they had it for humans. And the, the Heinz ketchup tattoos and yes. lots of cat videos. Right, lots, lots, of, of lots cat, and lots of cat, cat videos. videos. But I do try to put some little nuggets in there for people. I've always thought, like, I used to have a, uh, an email list called, um, God, what is it, the Supreme Court Today. And I would try to make it entertaining enough for people to read. And that's kind of the reason why I throw in the little nuggets is to keep people reading. I was on that email list. I appreciated it then. And we appreciate Realist Watch now. John Elwood, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor. And thanks to our production team, Andrew Hamm, Edith Roberts, and John Levitan.